Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What has a muscular purple head, is enormous, sheds one slimy egg per year, ugh, and yet everyone who encounters it falls immediately in love. Even now, if I hear a gurgle, I get excited. Truly, after all this time, still absolutely excites me. G'day and welcome to Look At Me. I'm Benjamin Law. Now, everyone's distracted by the well-known Australian animals. Koala, kangaroo, platypus, much beloved, arguably overrated. But what about the slimy ones, the smelly ones, the slutty ones? There are a lot of slutty animals out there, Ben. That's Chris McCormack from Remember the Wild. And he's here to explain Australia's lesser-known animals to me. Because I know really next to You're nothing. an ignorant urbanite. How dare you? Actually, that's quite correct. Look, it's not your fault, Ben. Uh, sometimes we get stuck in our little human bubble. But there's, believe it or not, a whole continent outside of your Sydney apartment. And I've gone and found some of these amazing creatures. And I've dug one up for you this episode. First of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out this prop um, because I need to give you an idea of scale. So, Okay. Okay, so this is... Measuring tape, uh, bright green, about the size of my hand. So that's that's what we're going to look at today. That's the entire animal could fit in the palm of my hand. No, no what I'm going to do is see that what you can do with these is you can actually, you can kind of pull this measuring tape out and you yep. can start to get an idea of length. So I'm going to come to about here. Wow, that is, that is exceptionally long. You've extended it to what, 143? Three centimetres. Yeah, look, so about a metre and a half. Okay, so that is either a very short animal standing or a very long animal stretched out. Well, this is this is kind of how long it is lying down. Uh-huh. Um, but if you if you were to stretch it out, you could probably get Okay, so this is this is kind of extending across the studio now and it is hitting the wall. Oh, oh, and it has collapsed. I was wondering when that was gonna happen. And that's a problem for this animal too. Right. <laughs> Grab, <laughs> they have no kind of support structure of their spine. Do they even have a spine? They do not. You've extended the tape measure to far beyond I... I was at about three metres. Right, three metres. So, yeah, way taller than me, way longer than me. We've got a measuring tape horror accident in the studio now, but it is it's kind away. of flop, It's kind of flopping back into its home, yeah. which is a very graphic way of putting it. People might not believe this, but they really are beautiful creatures. Um, they have this dark purple, quite a, quite a striking purple head, um, which is shiny and 
big <laughs> and, um, and quite muscular as well. And then they grade into this pinky flesh sort of colour. They're very gentle and graceful in their movements. I think they're really quite beautiful creatures. Shiny purple head, slightly pinky. We're talking about the Australian penis today, aren't we? <laughs> Uh, yeah, graceful. Uh, no, but not... exceptionally long at, at, at almost like three meters lying down. That's the, and that's... doesn't really have a support structure. I've nailed it. <laughs> this is what we're looking at today, Ben. I'm going to show you a photo here. Oh wow, that what that looks like on first impression. I'm like, oh, that's a snake. And now that I look at it closer, that does not look like a snake because it's slightly too skinny to be a snake and it looks vaguely intestinal as well like it's just a long coil of like gut tract or something when that person was saying it was beautiful that's not necessarily my definition of beautiful but maybe you can convince me what what is that this is the giant gippsland earthworm oh it's a worm that makes sense it's a worm it's a, a muscular graceful worm Look, really, this is a fascinating animal. It's, a, it's beautiful, as you've heard, and there's only one person who can really tell you about it, and that is the Worm Woman. Worm Woman being one of the lesser-known Marvel superheroes. Come here to meet the Worm Woman. Sounds like a cockatoo in the home. I was warned about this. Beverly, hi, how are you? Good. Lovely nice to, to meet, meet you. you. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Pleasure. Is that the cheeky cockatoo exactly. you're talking me about? Actually, I wanted to do something about keeping him quiet. But oh, that's okay. Through, you just get to be excited. This is Dr. Beverly Van Prague, and she's been studying the giant Gippsland earthworm for more than three decades. So wow. she's, she's the world's sole expert on this um, amazing species. Worm Woman is devoted to this worm and has been for quite a long time. So what is the appeal? Why would you study this worm for so long? Look, that's a great question, and I, I was wondering the same thing. I guess um, because, well, they were just so big that we had this big animal, enormous animal, living underground, and although people knew about it, it, it was still quite iconic, I guess, in the area to a degree, but we didn't know anything about it. And it was threatened. Ding, you know, it rings all the bells of, of um, pricking up interest and wanting to find out more about it. And I thought, no, someone's got to really bring them to the attention of the people and, and find out as much as they can. And I guess it's really interesting work, doing research on something that no one knows anything much about because everything you find is new and shiny and exciting so um yeah so i did my phd on them and on their distribution and conservation and biology um and then really have just continued through and that was giving away my age here but gosh 25 30 years ago something like that and really have been right so and really the worm woman harbors a dark secret ben wow a criminal past as as a worm herself <laughs> Well, perhaps worse than that for someone that's spent their life uh, studying worms. Handling them. So I'll tell you a secret, but don't tell anybody else. I'm a little bit grossed out by the movement of worms when they wriggle around. So you, hang on, you're, a, you're pretty much the expert in a giant earthworm and you're a bit grossed out by worms. Correct. That's right. 
That just makes her normal, though, doesn't it? Like, when you dig up Earth and there are worms, like, instinctively, they are gross. Intellectually, you know, they're very helpful for the soil. But to amplify that feeling, I mean, if I saw a worm that big, like, your tape measure went on for quite some time before, and that was wriggling like an earthworm, I think I'd have nightmares. Yeah, well, I guess, I don't know, but like if there's things that kind of gross you out, would you spend 30 years of your life studying it? Yeah, but then again, maybe there is that instinct where it's like if there's something gross, sometimes your immediate reaction is to recoil, but then your second reaction is to look closer. (laughs) Like like I'm grossed out, but I can't look away. (laughs) So before we just heard her talk about vertebrates and invertebrates so vertebrates i'm guessing are like you know mammals things with skeleton like snakes and worms one's a vertebrate and one's an invertebrate is that right absolutely one one has vertebrae one has a spine and one doesn't so invertebrates are things like insects and crustaceans mm-hmm. your worms mollusks so like your slugs and your snails things like that mm-hmm. things that squirm So we dig up worms in the soil, we get why they exist, they're there to nourish the earth and to poop out fertiliser essentially. Why does this one need to be so big? That might sound like a hateful question, like why does it exist? But why is it so big and what's it doing? Well, I think it's a really good question. It's perhaps, you know, it's perhaps the obvious question, but I, I don't think we really know. Perhaps it's evolved to be this large to occupy deeper soils Mm -hmm. that other worms can't get to. We're not quite sure, but, you know, there are lots of different worms in the world and they all have different ways of existing. Most people would be familiar with the earthworms they have in their gardens and they're actually earthworms that have been introduced from Europe. So they came across in pots of soil and plants and things like that that people brought across. And that, that's mainly what you'd find in your garden. Australia does have maybe a 1,000 species of native earthworms um, and they're usually found in the more natural bush areas. So generally what you find in your garden is a European earthworm. And there are several different types of earthworms in the way that they occupy or habits in the way that they occupy the soil. So you get some that are found in the leaf litter. So they kind of live just above the surface in the litter um, and feed on that rotting litter material. Then you get others that live just below the surface and don't go much further down. And then you get those that go quite a bit deeper into the soil. Wow, like roughly a thousand native earthworms. So the nightmare doesn't end here. No, it doesn't. And you know, the, the as Beverly said, the average earthworm that you dig up in your garden um, is a colonizer from uh-huh. Europe. Yeah, yeah, they flew over here. <laughs> the giant Gippsland earthworm is native, and it's indigenous to Gippsland in Victoria. It's only found in this small area. This is the only place they're found in the world, which is in that South Gippsland area, around Loch Corumburra up to Warrigal. So they live in an area that's about 40 k's north to south. Okay, you you could drive this in 40 minutes. Uh, That's like from Sydney to Blacktown, from Melbourne, uh, you wouldn't even make it to Geelong, and uh, it's about the length of North Stradbroke Island. That's it. So incredibly contained area in which they exist, and they don't exist anywhere else. That's right. This is it. This is the only place they're found to exist. Wow. So there are these giant worms that exist in Australia, and yet they're just located within a very, very small patch of the country. Nowhere else. That's nuts. 
Are they just really frightened of other spaces? Well, look, I guess, you know, we, we call them earthworms, but not all Earth is the same Earth. So mm. they're, they're existing in this very specific kind of clay soil, and it has to be moist because if it's not moist all year round, they dry up, no more worms. So I'm thinking these worms, they're very, very large. Uh, intellectually, I think they must be easy to find and study, but of course they're like deep in the soil and very specific types of soil as well. So how would you even begin to study a worm like this? Well, that's right. I mean, they, they may be big, but they don't come to the surface. This isn't like, you know, your backyard after rain and there's a bunch of worms, you know, squirming around. So what I have to do is I either can walk along and listen for gurgles. Gurgles. So what are these gurgles? Can, are these earthworms talking? So although the worms don't physically make a gurgling sound, you know, with their voice or anything, um, when their burrows are always wet, so when they move down their burrow system, it actually makes this sort of squelching sound like water draining out of a bath. So that's really quite obvious and quite scary for those who have never heard it before. So there are giant worms crawling underneath the earth and as they move, they make a giant sucking noise like the bath used to make when I was six years old and still haunts my nightmares to this day. Wonderful. That's pretty much a, a spot-on description. Have a listen. Wow, that is some interesting plumbing going on right there. Yeah, well, that's the worm essentially moving off from where you are because of your vibrations. Um, oh. But, yeah, it's going to be in that area beneath your feet. So then Beverly can say, okay, found a worm. Right. So they live in these kind of burrow complexes, right, all these different tunnels, these, these underground uh, systems. Okay, so they're not, they're not kind of just swimming through the earth. They're, they've got these burrows that they spend most of their time in. These, they've got these... like an underground metro system? That's pretty much it. Uh-huh. And how do they... How do they even make them? Are they eating their way through and forming that architecture? They've got a really muscular head. Right. So their head is, um, yeah, the top end of it is is really like, not like a bulldozer, but, yeah, they're pushing their way through the soil. So I think a lot of people have this idea that worms are kind of, you know, going around eating a bit of a Pac-Man style. Yeah. You know? they, yeah, they probably do a combination of that, but they also push through the soil with their wow. head. So a muscular head... That's just burrowing day in, day out. So it's a combination of like a train moving through metro systems, but when needed to, we'll kind of bulldoze a new system. That's right. So it's a very muscular head and it's just pushing and pushing and pushing. And What about when you get a European earthworm? We know that if you like chop it, apparently you've got two worms. Is that right? Is that the same here? That, that's a fantastic question. When you chop a European earthworm, you get two earthworms. No, you don't. No. no, okay, so I've been not. lied no, to my entire life. You can't just chop an animal and get two animals. Right, I mean, so that actually kills a worm. You've killed that worm. Right. And it's the same for the giant Gippsland earthworm. Oh. So you can you can look for these burrows, but, but as well as the burrows, if you excavate and you see these burrows, there's also other signs, things that they might be leaving around that will tell you a worm has been present. What Beverly would call cast material, like mm -hmm. cast material, which is poo, worm poo, or eggs. So I can show you some that I've got yeah, with me, yep, if you want. So that's a giant Gippsland earthworm egg cocoon. That's an egg. That's an egg. That is massive. It's huge. 
They are, I guess, almost the size of a cocktail sausage, really. Yeah. Um, maybe five to eight centimetres big. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Lots so, of protein. Yeah, five to eight centimetres. I mean, how big is your garden variety uh, millimetres. Normally you wouldn't even see them in the soil unless you really, you'd sift through it. So these are probably the largest um, egg cocoons in the world of any earthworm. Wow. So how many how many of these massive eggs would um, mummy earthworm produce? Mummy and daddy. Mummy and daddy. <laughs> I guess they are hermaphrodites. That's right. Okay, we heard mummy and daddy worm. The worms are hermaphrodites. That means what? They're self-breeding, they're self-fertilising. They don't self-fertilise, but they do have male and female organs, sex mm-hmm. organs. So they require a, another worm to mate. And they and it can be any other worm, considering every worm has male and female sex organs. That's right, any other worm of the same species. Uh-huh. So they're swapping sperm and then using the sperm from the other worm to fertilise their eggs. Oh. And one of the things I found during my PhD is it looks like they actually store the sperm from the other worm, so they'll store it in something called a spermatheca. So a genetic package, thank yeah, you. Yep, yep. I'll save that for later. That's right, and it, it, exactly. So they store it, and then when the opportunity or the environment is right for them to lay the eggs, they then um, get this swollen clitellum. You know, most people would be familiar with a garden earthworm that has what they call a saddle. Yeah, around them. That kind of, it's almost like uh, a, a swelling. But the giant earthworms that have this huge glutellum and from when that swells during the breeding season, which is spring through to summer, um, they then secrete the egg cocoon through this, possibly only one a year and even then maybe only when conditions are right. Then they um, dispatch the sperm from the other worm and then their own eggs from up here and it slips over the worm and hardens and becomes this egg cocoon. They also um, secrete the fluid that is the nourishment. It's like a milky fluid in there where the earthworm grows. You get the um, sperm of the worm it's already mated with. So there's own egg. kind of shedding the egg. Yeah, yep. So it's not, they're not kind of... Um, they don't lay it as such. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and that's the same for all earthworms. So wow. they, their process is no, not really any different. But on a bigger scale. But a much bigger, more magnified scale. And then when it comes off, you'll get external fertilisation. So then you'll get the sperm and the egg create the worm within that egg cocoon. Then it hatches and it's already maybe 28 centimetres long when it hatches. When it comes out. Yeah. I imagine some people hearing that would think, wow, that sounds really strange and gross. But then when you think about it, you've got earthworms who can mate with anyone. You can find a partner anywhere. The birthing process doesn't sound too painful. You just shed it and it just like comes out of you and then you just keep going on with life. Maybe we should all breed like that. Yeah, and look, maybe one day we will. But uh, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. It's not much of a burden from a uh, parenting point of view. You just kind of shed your offspring like uh, some dead skin cells or something and then walk away. And also leaving it with all the ingredients it needs to be nourished for a certain period until it hatches. That's right. So Beverly said external fertilization there. So basically the actual fertilization process of sperm going into egg is occurring off the worm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 not happening inside the worm. So the worm's not even getting pregnant, really. Mm-hmm. It's just shedding the part of it that is getting pregnant. Wow. So imagine like every time we went into the shower and just sloughed off dead skin, that would just be babies. I'll try not to. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a giant worm, lays one egg a year, 
in a very, very particular part of Australia, and that's all. That's the only habitat for it. So there mustn't be that many of them, I imagine. Because of their size and the way they live, I guess in some ways their biology is a bit more um, comparative to a mammal in the, in the fact that they are very long-lived. They have a slow population turnover, um, very slow dis- low dispersal rates. I don't think they move very much at all. Um, and, you know, only laying one egg and one baby per egg is very different to your common earthworms that may short-lived, may only live months, Um, some might live years, they lay lots of cocoons, so it's a different strategy for survival. But because the giant earthworm has this strategy where everything is slowed down, they're living a life of slow motion, I guess, makes them really vulnerable to environmental changes. And that's actually one of the main reasons that they're threatened because you've got this really slow growth rate and slow population turnover, they can't respond to changes, they can't move very far. So if they're in one little pocket of habitat, and sometimes I can find them in areas that are as small as, you know, I don't know, 20 metres squared, literally, there's nowhere in between that they can move to the next not contiguous habitat. So they can't move to the next good patch of soil. So they're pretty much stuck in these microcosms of suitable habitat. There's a part of me that listens to that and here, maybe there's a bit of victim blaming, that they're lazy, that they're sedentary, that their lifestyle contributes to their own demise. But on the other hand, I hear that these are creatures that won't adapt well to changing climate uh, and different changes in the environment as well. So they need certain things in order to survive. We present a direct threat to that. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right, Ben. Um, They're not lazy. They're different. And (laughs) look, climate change is potentially a real problem for the species because as we've heard, they require moist soil. And we know that things are getting drier here in Australia. Um, So part of the problem is that they used to live under wet forest, but we got rid of that and we put cows and sheep and Mm. everything else on top. So potentially their habitat has been compromised for the future. The interesting thing about these worms, I guess, is you know how before I said mostly native earthworms are found in bush areas. They're not found in disturbed habitats. The giant Gixland earthworm has actually managed to survive pretty much the entire destruction of its habitat, which was once tall forest, and now it survives in pretty much farmland, but in these smaller pockets of suitable habitat. So it has managed to adapt so far long-term prospects I guess we don't know particularly with climate change but it is found in um, you know to coexist with farming. Most earthworm habitat actually occurs on privately owned land so really the message is getting out to landowners they're the custodians really of most of the earthworm habitat so it's getting them to actually be educated on how to look after the earthworms on their own land and if we don't get to the farmers and get to the landowners and convince them that earthworms are worthy of um, conservation, then, you know, we've really failed. I have them, my cousin next door has them, but over further they don't. But loads of Jumbunna, which is just over there, next valley. Well, who are we hearing from now? This is Libby. Uh, She's a beef farmer and a bit of a conservationist down in Gippsland, and she's got worms. Basically, it was down in the gully here. And all, the, it, sort of the creek line runs down here to 
the edge of the property there. They're up there, st straight out there, there's a little bit of re-veg, just a block there that isn't finished. Yep. They're in there and they're on the, to the um, left left of that, in that patch that's... So that, well, that sort of clump there of young trees out on the hill. Yes, that, all, all, all that whole paddock down to the creek, just you'll find the worms wow. in there. So look, Libby's originally from the Melbourne area and she's actually spent her life really as a gardener, a bit of a conservationist, but she loves gardening. So now she's gardening on a larger scale. She's bought this land down in Gippsland and she does a bit of farming to get by, but really she's there to revegetate it, protect it, preserve it for the future. I dreamt I, when, when I was young that I would live in a park and I'm living in a park mm. with big trees now. It's exactly where world. I wanted to be. <laughs> I really think the best thing is the gurgling noise in the ground. Yeah. The kids love it. They just little eyes pop out and then it's gone. That's <coughs> just watching them is very funny. What's the feeling you experience when you, you're walking around your property and you and you, you step somewhere and you hear that sound? It's, you know, I get all excited. I love it. I think it's great. I'm very pleased with myself. You'd think I gave birth to them, but I didn't, you know. <laughs> I love the fact that they're there and I've protected them and no one's going to plough them up. So Libby's moved down here. She's wanting to preserve the land. She's actually convinced members of her family to buy adjacent land, corrupted them in her own words. Specifically to protect worms and to foster a healthy environment for them? No, not originally. That wasn't the original plan. So this area used to be forest, and she wants to bring species back. So what would she do, Ben, if she was wanting to, you know, preserve the land? Well, buy it up and, what, re-vegetate re it with natives? She'd plant trees. But there's a problem with that. Springs. One of the interesting things we've, we've found um, over the last few years that we kind of used to think was good, and that is re-vegetating earthworm habitat. Normally, if you've got a native species and you want to conserve it, you would think, yep, let's revegetate it, try to get it back plant to what trees, it was. Exactly. And they're really big on planting trees, yeah. you know, which is fair enough. But because um, hydrology is so critical for these earthworms to survive, by planting a dense stand of vegetation over the top of them, um, it dries the soil out too much and actually becomes a threat. So you found out that the planting of your trees could actually be having a negative impact on the worms that you've been trying to protect. So how did that make you feel? Devastated. Devastated. I thought, goodness, you know, I had this great idea and it's such a success, but it's not. What am I going to do? As soon as I heard that I may have compromised their habitat by the big planting of eucalypts, you know, sucking up all the moisture to establish themselves, I scurried down there and was very relieved to find that I could hear them under my feet still. So the instinctive thing is to revegetate somewhere, to rehabilitate some a patch of land to make it more like a native landscape. When you find out that it's not necessarily doing them the world of good, what's the next move? What are you supposed to do? Well, look, yeah, I guess it's 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 a complex situation. So this place used to be tall, wet, beautiful forest, you know, back when uh, Streslecki was trying to move through the area. He actually couldn't get his pack mule through. It was so dense with trees and ferns and things. But that's a dynamic system. 
when you're just planting young stands of trees, in that young age of their life, they're sucking up a lot of water and that's the potential threat. So look, she's not planting anymore. She's got different aged uh, vegetation on her property um, and she's, she's letting that go and the worms are still there. So essentially just backing off. Back, backing off, yeah. At least in the, those particular habitats, sections of her property where the worms are. But what happens when Libby's gone? Say people come in, they develop the property, they plant trees that aren't even native, they build a vegetable patch, they build a granny flat, they do the things that people do with land. What happens to the worms? There are these things called covenants, okay? And so you can protect private land by putting a covenant on them with, for example, the trust for nature. And that means that particular habitats on this property, even if someone else does buy it, legally they can't do much to those sections. So that's something that Libby's working towards to make sure that these worms are protected for the future um, in the eventuation that she's not there to look after them. But one question uh, I'm not sure we've answered yet, Ben, is... Mm -hmm. Why do we care? Yes. Okay. So I now know that there are these amazing giant worms in Gippsland. They're roaming around. They're fascinating creatures. They're hermaphrodites that breed in unusual and fascinating ways. So that's great. I love the idea of going down to Gippsland and hearing them gurgling around under the earth. But say they disappear. Say they become extinct. They're already endangered. What would happen next? Why should we care? A lot of people believe to conserve something, that it has to play an important role, that that's what conservation's about. Whereas I don't have that view at all. My view is everything has intrinsic value and deserves conservation. I guess, you know, earthworms do have an important role and the giant earthworm is probably no exception. But a lot of... Um, a lot of animals and a lot of invertebrates in particular, we don't understand their role anyway. And um, everything probably is interconnected. Everything has its secrets. We don't know what the role is or what would happen if we remove one of those invertebrates or any animal from that whole web of life system. So you don't know what that impact is. But if you, you take that away, just my view is everything deserves to be conserved. So it sounds to me like we're not actually sure what might happen if we lose this giant worm in Gippsland, but the more terrifying thing is we won't actually know until it actually happens. These are hard animals to study, and we don't know much about most invertebrates on this planet. It's very risky to assume nothing will occur if you lose a species, but as Beverly says, even if nothing did occur, which I think is unlikely, doesn't the worm have a right to exist? Mm. We've compromised its habitat. Shouldn't we protect it? Mm. Okay, so when you showed me that worm first up, I was like, that looks like one of those things that you see in the Daily Mail. You won't, you won't believe what we pulled out of this child's nose. Like it's almost, you know, sensational shock value animal. But now that you've told me all about it, it's kind of like majestic in its own way as well how it roams underneath the ground, how, how its fiefdom is quite contained, how it breeds as well. I think I'm in love with this worm. I mean, I wouldn't kiss it, would you? Oh, that's a, it wasn't rhetorical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are your feelings towards the worm? Look, I think it's an absolutely fascinating animal. And, um, you know, I think 
really the way we can connect with animals like this that we don't get to experience ourselves is through the people that do experience them. And mm. Beverly's love and affection is absolutely infectious for this creature. Um, mm. You know, the way she describes it, um, the way, you know, her eyes glisten when she talks about this worm. I think if she's able to see so much value in this thing and have studied it for so long, it must be pretty special. Although I have diverged and, you know, I have worked on other species as well, I've always come back to the earthworms. And even now, if I hear a gurgle, I get excited. Truly, after all this time, still absolutely excites me. And I think while you've got that, you just keep going. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find all our other episodes at theguardian.com or any podcasting app. Please give us a rating or review anywhere you can. It really helps people find out about the show and who wouldn't want their lives enriched by this trove of giant worm information. And just for the record, trove of giant worm information is the title of my upcoming memoir. Look at Me is supported by the Australian Conservation Foundation and is hosted by me, Benjamin Law. It was produced by Chris McCormack from Remember the Wild and Miles Martignoni at Guardian Australia.